Thanks for listening to the Grace Life Podcast, where we want to know God, love people, and reach our world. If you have any questions or want to learn more about us, you can always check us out online by going to gracelife.church. We'd love for you to stay connected throughout your week and everywhere you go with the gracelife.church app. It's free and available wherever you download apps. We're in a series. If you were here last week, we kicked it off. Uh, Our series is called First. That video was silly, wasn't it? Come on, it's okay, it's silly. There's no other word for it. Nobody would do those kinds of things. It was funny. That's why it's funny music. Everything about it is funny. But the reality is there are things in our lives that we don't have in the right order. Jesus did a sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. It is arguably his most famous sermon, arguably his most famous teachings, where he was saying, look, this is what you think of life, but let me tell you how life really should be. And we actually preached through this a few years ago. We called the series Life redefined. Because up until that point, they believed this was how to do everything. And Jesus came and said, this is how you're supposed to actually be doing life. And one of the statements that Jesus made, we talked about last week, it's a very, very famous sentence in that whole sermon. And he said this, but seek first the kingdom. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. And the question is, what did he mean when he said all these things? Well, if you read it in context, he actually had just listed them all. He had spent all this time in his sermon talking about the stuff you need to live. You're going to need food. You're going to need clothes. You're going to need money to buy things. You're going to need stuff. And he went through all of that stuff and said, look, this is important stuff. It's stuff you need. It's stuff you got to have. It's stuff that your heavenly father will give you, but just don't seek it first. Seek first his kingdom. And all this other stuff is going to be added to you. So what we're talking about in these four weeks is we're beginning a new year, and, and most of us are saying resolutions or, or goals, and we're saying, how can I get my life back on track? We're looking at four things where we need to seek first God's kingdom and then let God do everything else. Because, you know, the best part of that is all these things will be added to you. Not all these things you can then go out and work really hard for. Not all these things you can then hope they'll... No, no, no. If you put God first, all these things we had to do is what he says. And so that's the cool promise of this. So last week we began with this idea. We need to put God first in our day. And I want to tell you what, you are, are so encouraging to me. You know, when, when I want to get up here every Sunday and do this, it, it just really makes a difference for me knowing that you cared about what I said the last week. I mean, I was going to be honest, that's, that's like really important. And, and so the number of people that have texted me this week saying, hey, my morning is different, and hey, I'm going to do this, and the, the, the emails and everything else just telling me the, the number of people that actually are responding and putting God first in their day is amazing. So just for the fun of it, I'm going to put you on the spot. You guys ready for this? If you altered your morning in any way to put God first in your day or to put God more first in your day than you had before after last Sunday, raise your hand. How many of you are making a difference? Come on, everybody clap for the other hands that are up if your hand's not up. I I, want to applaud you that you are putting God first in your day, and I promise you that if if you keep doing that, God's going to reward you. He's going to show up because God loves when His children seek Him. So here's the thing. As we go today into part two, I've got a theology assignment for you. Who's ready for this? I know you woke up this morning and said, honey, I'm just really lacking for theology class in my life. Can we, uh, let's go somewhere where they're going to give me like homework early on, just right up front. Okay, here's your theology assignment for today. Uh, You need to make a decision. How much control does God have? That's the decision I'm going to ask you to make today. Now look, we're all at a different place in our journey. So some of us, 
uh, we're going to be answering that question right here. We're going to be thinking through some things. We're going to look at some Scripture, and we're going to be making a decision right here. But some of us, we, we know the answer. Some of you just said the answer a minute ago. Uh, we, we know the answer here. And what we're going to do today is move it from here to here. We're going to have to work on this, this whole idea of how much control does God have. Some of you have heard some of the story. I'm only going to share a little bit of it uh, because only this part of it is relevant today. But uh, years ago, my wife and I went through a very difficult pregnancy. Uh, very early on in the pregnancy, the, the doctors gave us a, a very negative prognosis, uh, basically telling us our child had a fatal birth defect and that our child would, would not live. And so as we uh, found out what this condition was called, we went home and we got on the internet. That's what everybody does today. First things first, you just begin to research this. You've got to know something about this. You've got to understand this, right? And so uh, we came across what we thought was going to be uh, kind of our, our, our best hope and help. It was a website written by Christians for Christians who had this condition. And it was a list of how to pray and all of these different things. As I began to look at the list, uh, there were 12 points, if I, if I remember correctly, because this was more than a decade ago, but there were 12 points of how to pray, and every single one of them was something to do with rebuking the enemy. One of them was, tell Satan he has not this right in your life, and, and rebuke the devil for doing this, and tell the devil he can't do that. And, and it was a list of 12 things telling the devil to get back. Y'all know what I'm saying, right? And, and as I'm, I'm standing there thinking, wait a minute, I'm, I'm about halfway through the list. I'm probably on like number six or number seven, and I've picked up on the theme that every one of these prayers is a rebuke of the devil somehow. And it occurred to me, if I need to converse with him, if I need to make my deal with him to get him to stop, then I worship the wrong one. It was at that point in my life that my theology went from here to here. See, I already understood theologically God's control here. But it's in the difficult trials that we go through that our theology really gets formed here. You guys know what I'm talking about. How many of you have ever kind of had that struggle? I think everybody, we've had a struggle like that where you, you know this, you know the devil's real, right? How many of you know the devil's real? Okay. How many of you know spiritual warfare is real? You know what's funny? Y'all did exactly what the first service did. More people know spiritual warfare is real than they do the devil is real. Some of you just didn't raise your hands because y'all know where spiritual warfare comes from, right? Okay. Y'all need to know the devil is real. The devil is real. Hell is real. Heaven is real. God is real. So spiritual warfare is real. The devil's real, spiritual warfare is real, but we know God is in control. The question is, do we actually know that? I mean, because, well, sometimes things happen. And maybe you're like me. I grew up going to church and going to Sunday school and going to vacation Bible school and, and doing all the little hand motions and singing, he's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole world. Yeah, there you go. You got it. That's great when you're six. He's got the whole... You imagine a little globe. You think about chocolate ice cream they're going to give to you after vacation Bible school that night. And then you grow up. And something like our pregnancy happens or a marriage falls apart, bankruptcy, personal sickness. And your theology begins to get all out of whack because well, you've heard the song, he's got the whole world in his hands. And so now when your world is literally falling apart, 
Well, some people say, wait a minute, how could God, who's got everything in his hands and everything under his control, allow this to happen? And so they just say, that God, and they walk away. And then there are other people, they just can't walk away from God, so they go to another extreme and they say, well, God's not doing, God. matter of fact, it's all the devil. The devil's doing absolutely everything, and God is just in heaven being awesome. He apparently is taking a nap or something, but that's okay. I'm not going to try to think through that because that would mess up my theology because I want to think God is good. I know my life is bad, so I'm going to blame it on the devil. And the difficulty that we have is wrestling with he's got the whole world in his hands, and sometimes our world is falling apart. As you answer that theological question this morning, I want to share with you just a couple of passages and then we'll eventually get to our main passage where we're headed this morning, but just to show you a couple of things. This one is King David out of First Chronicles, probably the last great speech he ever gave. It was a prayer that he ever gave to his people. It's out of First Chronicles. He says, yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power. Yours is the greatness. If there's a battle, yours is the greatness. You, Satan, no, he doesn't get the greatness. You, get the, you are the greater one. The greatness belongs to you. The power belongs to you. If there's something going on, it is not in the devil's hands. It is not in my hands. It is in your hands. You have the power and the glory and the victory. So if something is not going the way that it needs to go and there needs to be a change, if there needs to be a victory, it's in your hands. You have it. You are the one that can do this. And the majesty. Why? Because all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Wait a minute. Me, my life, my circumstances, everything I face because I live on the earth, that's in your hands. Yes. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. And you are exalted as head above all, both riches. Wait a minute, if I need money, they're in your hand. Yeah, riches and honor. You mean if I need promotion, if I need to be elevated in any way, that comes from you. Yes, it comes from you because why? You rule over all. And in your hands are power and might. And in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. Do we believe that? And we take comfort in verses like this out of Romans 8, one of the most famous. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And we go, yes. And we stand on that promise when everything is going crazy. And maybe something like this in Ephesians 1 says, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And then we know something like the story of Job. Job is one of the most inspiring stories in the Bible for us because it's the story of a man who held on to his faith despite his world falling apart. He lost everything. He lost his health. He lost his stuff, and he was wealthy. He lost his children. He lost his wife. He had absolutely nothing left but to sit on the ground. And as he was sitting on the ground, his friends came and joined him by attacking him and saying that God was doing this as punishment. And in the midst of his friends attacking him and everything left, he's an inspirational story for us to hold on to our faith in the middle of everything falling apart. But you might have missed how the story began. Twice at the beginning of the story, what happens is Satan comes before God and says, I want permission to mess with Job. 
You see, the Bible tells us that Job was a righteous man, and by that it means that he did his life according to God's ways. He was right with God. He had done what God said. So the devil looks at him and he goes, look at that Job right there. I, I, I want to mess, I want to wreak, wreak havoc all over his finances. Wait a minute. He honors God with his finances. Yeah, I'm going to wreak havoc on his, his thinking. Well, no, no, he actually thinks godly thoughts and submits. Well, I'm, dead gummit, I just can't do anything to him. Because he hasn't given me any reason to. So, so, so Satan goes before God and says, I want you to let me mess with Job because I'm going to prove to you that he will fall away. And twice God gives him permission to do that. And the moral of the story is, thank God we're not Job. <laughs> no, thank you, God. You know, as you're forming your theology about the stuff that happens in your life, one of the, the, the side trails that I need to take is to remind you about the story of Job. Sometimes we blame God for the things that we're experiencing, and we have given permission to the enemy. Now, I want to be very clear, because someone in the first service came to me and said, I, I need you to clarify for me, what were you saying and not saying, because I uh, maybe didn't get it quite as clear. I'm not saying that every negative circumstance in your life is a result of sin, A plus B always equals C. I'm not saying that at all. But what I'm saying is that God's word is clear about certain things. And, and when we violate those things and we don't do life according to his ways, then we mess up our own lives. And, and it's not to go, God, I thought you were in control. Why is my life like this? So for instance, God says, be faithful to your spouse. You start flirting with your secretary, your marriage is going to be a mess. Don't blame God. Blame you. God says, honor me with your finances, and live within your means. Those are great principles, tithing and budgeting and staying out of debt. And when you're facing bankruptcy, you need to ask the question, did you tithe? Did you follow a budget? Did you work hard? Diligence is in the Bible. Did you do these things before you go, why God am I bankrupt? That's all your fault. No, I mean, maybe we have given permission for some of these things. So before you think through the bad things in your life and form a theology about God can't be in control because bad stuff is happening to me, just ask yourself, have we given permission for some of those things? But what I want you to see, because that was a side sermon, <laughs> that was for free, two minutes. There you go. Some of you are ready to go to lunch now. What I want you to see is Satan had to ask permission to mess with Job because permission had not been given to him. So you see, if God is in control, then what do we do when we need answers? What do we do when we need rescue? What do we do when we need deliverance? Some of you right now are thinking through things where you've given permission. You, you totally just went off on your own, which is okay, because you just heard what you needed to hear. And you're thinking, oh my God, I've got to fix this, and I've got to, I've got to submit that to God, and I've got to repent. I've got to, I, you need deliverance. Where do you go when you need deliverance? Where do you go when you need healing? Where do you go when you need a change of circumstances? And you may say, well, wait a minute, change of circumstances, Jimmy, that includes people. I need a promotion. My boss is the one who's going to do it. I need my marriage better. My spouse won't get on board, won't go to counseling. I need a change in my circumstances, but it includes a person. I've done everything I can. I've prayed to God. What about them? Well, I'm going to tell you about them. The Bible says that God has the heart of the king in his hand and can direct it like a stream of water. This is where, once again, your answer is not to go yelling more at your spouse, not to go brown-nosing to your, to your boss, not to try and bring brownies for the head coach so you'll be a starting player. No, you go to God. See, the answer is we seek God first. We seek 
God first. But the truth is we usually don't, do we? Come on, everybody be honest with me. You know what we do? When something wrong comes, the first thing on the list is not to seek God. The first thing on the list is to freak out. I can't believe this is happening. What am I going to do? That's the first thing we do. We stress out. We freak out. Some of us do it with way more drama than the others. And after we stress out and after we freak out, then we get on Facebook and we Facebook out. And we tell everybody, I need y'all to know what's going on in my life. This is just happening to me. And one of those, I mean, I'm not even going to ask you to raise your hand if you're a person who actually reads a post that long. I mean, I don't. I just going to leave. Because <laughs> we want the whole world out there. And we started out with, I need you all to pray for me. But no, that's not really what you mean because you haven't even prayed for you yet. What you really want is people to feel sorry for you. And you want sympathy and you want empathy, which leads to the next point. Then we go to other people. I cannot tell you the number of times that I've seen someone in financial troubles go to a person with better finances and say, I need you to pray for me. And they aren't asking for prayer. Come on, y'all know what I'm saying? Why didn't you go to a poor person? I mean, really, if you want prayer in your financial troubles, my car broke down, I don't know what to do. I want you to find somebody at a bus stop and ask them to pray for you. No, when you go to that rich person and say, I just want you to be praying with me about this, brother, that's not what you mean. And we go to people. And, and, and after we go to people, then we just say, okay, well, I've told everybody everything. I've put it all out there on social media. You know, God, so you can work through those people to give me something, you know, whatever. And we, we tell ourselves that, and after we've freaked out, we say, all right, I'm going to do my best. I'm going I'm to solve this problem. I know what to do now. I'm going to go do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to work really hard at this and this and this and this. My first year of teaching, my classroom was literally just like this room because I was a band director in a place where band was not very well supported. What that means is I didn't get a classroom. So my classroom was the cafeteria. And in every cafetorium is what they call them, auditorium, cafeteria, and I cool? My classroom was the stage. And so this was literally my classroom, which doesn't account for a lot of privacy and has no desk or anything else. But right about where that fire thing is on the wall right over there, was a door to another classroom. And there were a few doors, a few classrooms along the way, very first year teaching. And there, there, was, there was a young lady who taught in that, that room that I, I had to get to know. And I emphasize the word had, because it was not a pleasure. But I had to get to know her because, well, I'm gonna see her more than everybody else, closest. Every time she opens that door, I'm standing here and she's right there. And she was one of those wonderful Christian people that goes to church every week, but doesn't look like a Christian at all. Nothing out of her mouth makes any sense. Like, is that in the Bible? No, it's not in the Bible. And so one of the, the things that she harped on me the most, she even gave me a book that I still haven't read. Because I was talking to her about something, and I said, well, you know what? Have you prayed about that? I will pray with you if you want. She said, oh, no, no, no. I believe God helps those who help themselves. I've still got work to do. You may think it's funny, but Many of us have that kind of theology. I'm going to give God my best. I'm going to do everything I can. I'm going to help myself. And, you know, somewhere in the end, I'm going to start the cycle over. I'm going to stress out. I'm going to freak out. I'm going to Facebook, and I'm going to go talk to somebody about it again, and then I'm going to do everything I can, and then eventually I'm going to go, and I'm going to stress out some more, and I'm going to talk to some more people, and I'm going to try again. And maybe, maybe you will finally get so sick of the cycle that you'll go, God! And the question is, what if we did that first? What if we would seek God first? 
You know, your whole perspective might actually change. Because if, if we realized God was in control, we believed God was in control, and we really believed God was in control, and something happens to you that doesn't quite work out the way you want it to, or appears like something's going to happen to you that may not work out the way you want it to, what if, instead of going, no, the first thing you did was go, huh, I am a child of God who sits sovereign upon his throne who might be wanting to once again demonstrate how he likes to kick the devil's butt. And he's just going to use me to do that. This is going to be so much fun. All I got to do is say, hey, God, you know, this, this whole getting laid off, not having a job, it's just an awesome opportunity for you to prove that you're my provider. Matter of fact, I'm not just going to get a job. This is you giving me a better job. This is you giving me a promotion. This is, I just got just to gotta maintain my faith and hold on to you. I don't need to put this on Facebook. I don't need to freak out. I don't need to go to my friend who I think might hire me. I, 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 no, I just, I'm just going to seek you. I'm going to tell you how great you are. And imagine if right then from heaven, God says, all you got to do is hold on. In six weeks, I'll give you a job. And you go, I can hold on for six weeks. I can, I can do, I can hold on for six. That's easy. Every day I'm just going to go, I'm good. My God's got me. Counting down the days, come on. I'm good, my God's got me. Four more weeks to go, I'm good. See, here's the problem. That doesn't ever happen. From our point of view. But it always happens from God's point of view. God always knows exactly what the outcome is. He knows when he's going to do it. He knows how he's going to do it. He knows through whom he's going to do it. And he knows exactly how. That's why at the end of hardship, at the end of hardship, we always find ourselves feeling a little foolish. Come on, don't we? I'll, I'll be the one to tell you, basically every time I have gotten to a point, I've said, I just don't think you will ever come through. I just don't think you can. I'm just so frustrated. I am so fed up. And then God shows up. And I go, I feel like a fool for saying that stuff. Because I knew you were a good God. I knew you would show up. But somewhere about week five, my faith just failed. And he showed up on week six, just like he knew he would. The problem is, our faith sometimes is dependent upon information about our circumstances instead of relationship with our God. We need to take seriously what we know there. Seek first His kingdom and all these things will be added to you. So that brings us to what we're talking about today. Seeking God first. It brings us to why we're talking about it today because this is our week of prayer and fasting. We do this twice a year every January and again every August because some of us operate, we think more about school years. Well, most of us honestly do. Our kids go back to school. The fall is kind of a re-up time. But twice a year, we like to remind ourselves to either seek God first or that we should be seeking God first, whichever the case is. And, and uh, if you've never been a part of this, I want to invite you, as you heard the announcement earlier, come out in the mornings. I want to encourage you to physically come out uh, sometimes we have people that pray as they go on their car drive to work or people that pray at home, and that is awesome. If that's all you can do, please do. But I want to encourage you to, to make the sacrifice and make the effort to get together with God's family in a room, feel the energy, feel the excitement, feel the passion of, of all of God's people who are saying, I'm going to set aside these things that are a distraction from my life with God that consume me or, or, or whatever the case is. I'm going to put those aside and I'm going to seek God. And when you get hundreds and hundreds of those people in a room together, there's something powerful to people saying, I really want to see God move. 
And so we're going to be here every morning at 6.30 during the weekday, 9 o'clock on Saturday. But the real special one, and I'm just going to tell you, it is more special. So don't, if you get a chance, don't miss this one. It is Monday night. It's the one time all week, nighttime, because some people mornings are just whatever. Uh, we're we're going to come together in this room. It's going to be crazy. Carpool, there won't be enough room to park. I'm already going to tell you that. There, there may not be enough seats, but just, just come on out. It's going to be exciting. And, and we're going to come together and show God that we seek Him first for whatever it is that we need in our lives. Now look, as I mentioned this whole idea of fasting, I, I realized I lost several of you about three minutes ago when I first said the word fasting because you went, what? <laughs> no food? Isn't that what people did in the Old Testament times? So that's what Jews do, right? Or that's what Muslims do now, right? That's what other religions do. Wait a minute, man. We're grace people. We're gra- we got this thing. Grace life. Don't you know the name of your own church, man? Come on. Grace life. In that Sermon on the Mount, a few sentences before he said, seek first the kingdom and all these things, he actually also talked about our main passage today. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. I know it's late in the message. Don't, <laughs> y'all are thinking, just got to the main, is there still 30 minutes to go? No, chill out. But anyway, check this out. <laughs> in that same message where he's saying, you thought it was like this, it needs to be like this. He starts out by saying, and when you fast. Wait a minute, Jesus. Everything you've said in this sermon, we're, we're out here sitting on this mount. We, we see this thing. I've been there in Israel. It's a cool place watching where he's done his little Sermon on the Mount idea. And everything you've said so far was you thought you were supposed to do this. Don't do it that way. Do it this way. You thought it was like that. No, it's not like that. It's going to be like this. And, and so you got to fasting. Jesus, you were supposed to say you thought it was all about fasting and really you need to go to a buffet. But Jesus said, but when you fast. Wait a minute, Jesus, you're supposed to tell, we, we don't need to do that anymore. See, works, no, uh grace, come on, Jesus, no, no, but when you fast. And what he changed was how and why. He didn't change that we're still supposed to fast, because he changed the how and the why. Look at this, he says, when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, which was his favorite nickname for the religious people. So he's literally referring to the people who are going to the synagogue, dressing up all of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all of those people. That's who he's picking on. And they know it, by the way. He says, don't look gloomy like them because they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. We've talked at times in other messages about how they did everything for a show. Their religion had nothing to do with God. It had to do with each of them making themselves look good. When they gave their offering, they would give their offering by holding their coins as high as they could so they would drop and make a loud clanking sound and people could see their coins falling into the basket. They had their phylacteries sewn into their robes. They wore their fancy robes and they would walk down the street going, oh, woe is me, I am fasting and seeking God. Be impressed with me. And God says, look, when you, Jesus says, when you fast, don't do that because they got their reward. Their reward was exactly what they wanted. They wanted man to be impressed with their spiritual show. And so other people went, whoa, look at them. They're awesome. They got their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. 
And just real quickly, some people think this means that you're supposed to keep it like absolute secret. No, it's okay to tell your family, maybe even tell your friends. If somebody at work invites you to lunch, maybe the first time you go, no thanks. And they go, really, why? You're not eating today? Great opportunity to go, actually, I'm not. Uh, my family, uh, my church family and I, we were fasting together this week for a move of God. Could I talk to you about it? It doesn't mean that you can't share with anyone that you're fasting. It means you don't share with someone that you're fasting to show off. Does that make sense? Okay, so that was extra. You didn't, that, that, that was there. Just, but catch this point. Your Father who is in heaven, who sees you fasting, will reward you. you may, wait a minute. There is a reward to fasting? Yeah, there's actually a reward to fasting. There are three rewards to fasting. If you've been around Grace Life anytime, these are not new. This is not something I've come up with. It's what's in the Bible. I teach it every single time. And so some of you could probably come up here and, and do this for me. But I'm just going to go ahead because I'm here and I like my job. So number one. We get more of God. We get more of God. We see this in Daniel. There were many times that Daniel fasted, many things that Daniel was facing. And in chapter 9, this time he says, Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking Him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting. And this was not one of those times where Daniel needed deliverance. This was not the story of Daniel in the lion's den. This was not the time that Daniel's buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were in the fiery furnace. This was not any of that. There was no crisis. Daniel had simply had a, a, a vision come to mind that he didn't understand, and he said, God, I need to talk to you. God, I need, I need your perspective. God, I need to hear your voice. God, I just want to be closer to you. He just was seeking God, nothing else. Our first goal should always be to be closer to God. Anybody with me on that? Our first goal should be to get more of his perspective, to hear his voice, to experience his presence. You know, you can be in someone's presence and not have fellowship with that presence. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Married people, come on, just go, yeah, I know that. I've had that feeling. You've been in a room with that person, but you are not in fellowship with their presence. You see, we see repeated examples all throughout Scripture of people when they just seek God, they come away with direction, they come away with clarity. How about Jesus fasting for 40 days? Jesus fasted for 40 days before his encounter with the devil. Do you think it was because he was needing deliverance? No. He's going to kick the devil's butt. We already said that twice today. I'm going to get in trouble online for that. Was he afraid of the devil? No, he had already seen the devil thrown out of heaven. He wasn't afraid. Why was he just to be closer to his father before he went into this thing. The second thing we get is a move of God. Second reward is a move of God. There are so many examples in Scripture. Every time I've preached on this, I've chosen a different one. That's how many there are. I've never preached on this one. I chose this one today because I think it's funny. I, I read the Bible with a sense of humor. I hope you do too. This one's out of the story of Ezra and all, all the people going back home to Israel. And he says, then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him. What? To seek? You, you want something from God? Yeah, to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and our stuff. We want God to take care of our stuff too and keep us alive. You know, I have heard people preach and teach that fasting, all the whole point of fasting is to humble yourself and deny your flesh. Do not expect something from God. That's manipulating God. No, we pray and ask God all the time because God is our Father. God is our provider. We don't manipulate Him. We say, God, I need you. And it is okay to say, God, I need you to move. It's in multiple places throughout Scripture. I, I, whoever preaches that has not read their Bible is all i got to say about that one. Anyway, here's the funny part of the story. He says, so, so we're, we're, we're needing from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. 
Because I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way since, since I had already told the king, hey, yo, dude, I don't need your help because the hand of my God is for good on all who seek him, like me. And the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him, like the people coming against me. So, but there are people that might kill me. I guess I should have thought about that before I said that. Hey, uh, God, I was kind of like being arrogant and showing off down here, trying to make you look good. It was all about you. I was just trying to say, you're really great. <laughs> you're really good. Uh, so, hey, so, yes, I don't want to go back to the king and like say, you wouldn't show up. You know, no, nothing about me humbling myself, but just like, <laughs> I just think that's funny. <laughs> so, we fasted and implored our God for this. And guess what? He listened to our entreaty. And we made it all the way back to Israel and he protected us and our children and even our stuff. And then there's the story of Daniel repeated times. There's the story of Esther. So many times in Scripture we see people proclaiming a fast to say, God, you've got to move. I need you to do a thing, a very specific thing. I need you to heal my marriage. I need you to heal my body. I need you to fix my soul. I need you to do something. I'm having nightmares. I'm afraid. I can't sleep at night. I can't go out in the street during the day. God, I need you to do something in my life. It's okay to say, God, I need a move of you. If you don't show up, Nothing in this world is going to do any good. And the third reward of fasting is simply spiritual realignment. Joel says, Yet even now declares the Lord, Return to me with all your heart with fasting. Return to me with all your heart with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. There's another passage out of 1 Samuel. It won't be on the screen. just said, So if you're returning to the Lord with all your heart, then get rid of your foreign God. And I know you might try to say something like, I don't have any foreign gods. What are you talking about, man? I'm in a Christian church on a Sunday morning. I'm here to say, hey, Jesus, I was singing Jesus songs earlier, Jimmy. Don't you know that? How, what, what do you mean get rid of my foreign gods? Foreign gods are anything that dominate us, anything that distracts us, anything that consumes us. And you want to know the truth? I would challenge any person in this room to stand up right now and say there's not one thing on planet Earth that dominates me, consumes me, or distracts me. Any takers? This is why we fast. This is why the staff fast with you, the pastors fast with you. We're doing this too. Because we're also people that have things that dominate us, like dark chocolate. I mean, God made cocoa beans. And God gave us intelligence. You put the two together, dark chocolate. But they can dominate you. They can distract you. How many of you, you get up in the morning and go, I'm going to get up and pray today. Let me just real quickly check Instagram. Next thing you know, oh man, is it time for the school bus already? Is it time for me to go to work already? I got a challenge for some of you. Y'all ready for this? Hey, look, I love social media. and I don't love it, but I don't hate it. Uh, I, and I do social media. Some of you noticed this week, I, I put out a picture of the rental car they gave me. I don't know why they gave me an orange Mustang. That was just foolish on their part. But that, oh, we had, a, we had a lot of fun, didn't we, Kent? Oh, that was, that, was, that was a lot of fun right there. So anyway, uh, uh, social media is okay. Not preaching against social media right now, but here, here's the idea. Social media is seriously distracting for some of us. The amount of time that goes into it. Matter of fact, social media is actually consuming 
Some of us, we can't go without it. There are studies being proven to <gasps> what it does to our soul to not know what the rest of the world thinks about us. So here, here's what I'm going to do. If you are a, a, a person who loves social media, if you're under 30 and, and you're distracted or consumed by it, if you're over 30 and you are, then you're weird, but that's okay. Um, everybody under 30, it's, it should be normal for them to some degree to love social media. Here's what I'm going to challenge you to do. I, I, I want you to download a Bible app. And I want you to put it, move it around, and put it on your home screen right, because I know it's on your home screen is where your social media app folder is. And I want you to put it right beside the social media. Here's what I want you to do for this week. Every time that you would go, and go to the Bible. And I want you to start with Matthew. And next Sunday, we're going to see who got the furthest. And the amount of time that you would normally be distracted and consumed with Instagram and Facebook and Snapchat and all that cool stuff, and Facebook or Snapchat just told you what generation you're in, but it's okay, we love you. And you're gonna, some of you are going to finish the book of Matthew. You're going to read an entire gospel this week. Some of you, y'all going to be in Philippians. <laughs> like, what? What is that? You'll find out. You're going to learn out a whole lot about God this week. Look. Years ago, when I was preaching on fasting, I felt like God gave me a, a sentence to help us understand that we get consumed with things of this world, things that distract us and, and so forth. And so here's the sentence he gave me. I'm going to keep using it until he gives me something better. Some of you have heard this. Hopefully, we'll get to a point we'll memorize it. Our physical world is not our home. Our physical desires are not most important. And our physical body is not our God. That's why we fast. That's why we fast. Because we need a reminder. We need a reminder. Our physical world, uh-uh. My, my home is heaven. This stuff, this stuff, uh-uh. My physical desires, if that's chasing Instagram, uh-uh. It's not most important. In my physical body, that's why I think the most common Fast in all of Scripture. The standard default idea of fasting in Scripture is food. Why? Because for most of us, this is our God. I mean, the amount of money we spend on its comfort and its decoration. And I mean, I, I, I like to decorate as well. I mean, y'all see the butterflies? Come on. <laughs> Not calling it bad, but it can very quickly become our God. And we fast, whatever. We don't set the fast. We don't set the fast. I want to invite you as you participate in the fast this week, if this is a new idea for you, I want you to know that on our app or our website, we've got a whole page dedicated to this. A couple of things we've done um, about a year ago, we, we were just getting a lot of questions every time. And so we just sat down on stage and now it is on our app or on our website. It's just Q&A. One of the pastors just asking me a series of questions. That's the best thing for you to go to first. If you've got no idea about what to do about fasting, go to our fasting Q&A. Watch those little snippets. That's, that's the best thing. We've also got links there for other messages I've preached on fasting where I took more time to explain options of fasting. And, and we've got articles about fasting. For you, you may fast food. You may fast types of food like sugar. You, you may fast social media. You may fast what I, I, we don't set what you need to do, because I don't know what is dominating you. I don't know what is consuming you. I don't know what, if you were to take it out of your life, would help you get closer to God, but the Holy Spirit knows that. 
And if you'll take a moment and ask him, he'll tell you. And that's what I want to ask you. I want to challenge you to fast that this week. I want to ask you to consider making the sacrifice of your time or your energy or your buffet and fast. Come together and pray with us this week as we do this. When you came in this morning, there was a card on your seat. I would like you to take that card right now. There's a pen in front of you, on the row in front of you, except the front row can reach back and grab one. Here's what that card is for. We're going to pray for you. We're going to pray for you every time we come together this week. It doesn't matter if you're a guest. It doesn't matter if you know that you will never again walk through those doors. We're still going to pray for you. All we need to know is what do you need God to do in your life? So before you fill out that card, here's what I want you to do. I want you to imagine right now at this moment that you just had the most amazing encounter. God himself came down in a form, maybe an angel, whatever, however you want to imagine this, and stood right in front of you and said, what do you need from me? I'm your father. I'm your provider. I'm your healer. I'm your victory. You know how I can say those things? Because God gave himself names in the Bible. And each of those names were the ones I just said. He said, I am Jehovah Jireh. I am Yahweh, your provider. I am Jehovah Nisi. I am Jehovah Rapha. I am your healer. I am your victory. I am everything you need. I am that for you. What do you need me to do in your life? We're asking God to move in our lives. I want you to take a moment right now and write down your answer to God on that card. When we're finished, you're going to drop those in the buckets at the end of the time. But right now, just take a moment. Everybody, go ahead, right where you are, and fill out those cards. Our God is personal. He knows each and every one of us. He loves each and every one of us. He sent his son to die for us. And that was when we were his enemies. Imagine what God does when you cry out to him and say, God, you're the only answer. I said a verse earlier. I said, God works all things together for the good of those who love him. In the context of that passage, to be fair to you, I want to explain to you, that is not people who just think he's a nice guy. That is not just people who have gone to church a time or two. It's saying those who would consider themselves children of God by the saving grace of Jesus, recognizing that they themselves are separated from God if he doesn't save them and bring them back together. We all want to claim this promise that everything that works together is for my good. The Bible promises that, but it does not promise that for those who have not made Jesus their king. That is not the promise. As we celebrated earlier, 118 people last year, four people last week. Every time we come together, we want to remind you that each of us at some point in life has to recognize that we have a perfectly holy God and then we have us. And the only way those two come together is by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He died the death we deserved so that we can live a life that glorifies Him in fellowship with Him, in a community with Him. And if you have never made that commitment, if you've never made that decision, I want to help you do that here this morning. 
We're not going to embarrass you or ask you to come down front, but right where we're seated, would you all join me and pray? Say something like this to yourself and to God. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you died for me. And now I want to live for you. I thank you for your love, your mercy, and your forgiveness. And my simple prayer here today is that you would give me a life of great meaning and great purpose in your kingdom. Amen. Let's celebrate with those people. Amen. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. If you've made the decision to follow Jesus, congratulations. It's the best decision you'll ever make. If you've been impacted in any way, we'd love to hear about it. Head over to gracelife.church resources where you can share your story and find other tools for following Jesus. We hope you go out and make Jesus famous in your world.